Welcome to Aesthetics Mastery, the podcast to help you thrive and raise the bar in your aesthetics practice. I'm Dr. Adam Chong. And I'm Dr. Tim Pierce. Dr. Tim Pierce is a GP, founder and director of Skin Viva and Skin Viva Training. And Dr. Adam Chong is a clinical lecturer at Manchester University, a GP and also an aesthetic trainer and doctor at Skin Viva Limited. Thank you, Tim. So it's great to be back. Uh, I've been away for four weeks in Japan, had a cheeky little holiday cheeky little mission and a half with a 10-month-old. Um, I, I think we should do a podcast just on how you managed to do that with a 10-month-old, especially boy as well, because they're so high energy. He is how a little it? bundle of energy. Um, I need another holiday now, put it that way. Um, it, it was hard, but it, it was amazing. Um, I think we learned a lot in terms of how to deal with challenges, you know, planning, that sort of thing. I think if we can deal with that, we can do anything with a child. Absolutely. Well, um, I must say, in my experience traveling with kids i mean 10 months was the last time we went out for dinner when i realized that you just can't actually have dinner you've got to you've just got to um sit one of you has to occupy them while the other one eats yeah so um yeah i I really you i actually find it quite inspirational what you did and it's made me question my 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 attitude to only going on uh, on package holidays since i've had kids so maybe we'll do something more adventurous the 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 flight was probably the biggest challenge um 18 hours or so of flying the other thing like you say about meals he we didn't have a single meal together. One of us had to take him outside while the other one ate. So, yeah, there were definitely challenges. But I feel refreshed and I'm raring to go again. It's, it's great to be back. Great. It's great to have you back. How are you, Tim? Uh, I'm okay. Yeah, I've got a bit of a sore throat. Um, interesting. We shouldn't go on too long about other things, but my GP prescribed steroids, one dose of steroids for a sore throat, which is a new one on me, but uh. it really helps. Uh-huh. <laughs> I feel, maybe it's just the steroids, but I feel a bit, I feel much more positive. Along um, with antibiotics or... Uh, no, it's started. definitely viral. There's nothing ah. bacterial about it. Um, and then I did Google it, obviously, as you do. And uh, there are a couple of RCTs saying that it helps, and no, particularly in a simple viral sore throat. So that's another little... <laughs> D- dose of prednisolone? Uh, oh. 30. 30, okay. Just one dose, stat. Oh, interesting. How has everything else been since I've been away, and how's your week been? Oh, it's been a hectic. We'll do, a, we'll do a podcast all on that. Well, today's related to one of the things that happened, which is on... Uh, good. Uh, the day before Good Friday, I had my first vascular occlusion ever. Wow. Um, so I, pr- I, 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 I never know how to work this out and look back, but I think I've done around 30,000 procedures in 10 years, and that's my first one with me injecting. We've obviously in the clinic handled, due to the training school, mm-hmm. um, I think a total of three, including that one. Okay. Um, so it wasn't my first time dealing with it, but first time actually being fully responsible for the injection that caused it, which is a, a whole different emotional game compared with when it's, when it's someone else's issue so yeah I, I think that's what i thought today would be a great day to talk about um how to deal with vascular occlusions great i think you've been through thirty thousand injections and you've got your first one i think that's quite impressive i think that's something to be proud of almost yeah and it helps uh, so much having gone through and that's what i really want to share to people mm-hmm. is is hearing exactly what it's like to actually go through that re- that rescue process um will help people because um, unlike so many other emergencies in aesthetics, so many of us operate on our own. Um, there's, there isn't someone uh, necessarily that you can get in front of you who's done it 10 times before. There are very few people who've done it 10 times. Um, you know, even with a training school and we support you know, 1,200 people online, we don't actually see that many of them, uh, which is good. But it's, uh, it's great that I can share this so that someone who is listening to this will be able to handle it much better if it ever, if it ever does happen to them. And like I always say about safety, you should assume that it will happen to you and then you'll make it less likely and you'll be more prepared. Okay, well, it'll be really interesting to hear 
hear that story actually, Tim. So before we go on to that, let's have the clinical pearl of the week. Right, so we, we talked about cheek last time, and um, I was thinking about my experience working with Arthur Swift when he does demonstrations, and he particularly likes to do this little technique where you pull back on the skin and then insert the needle all the way down to periosteum when you're treating the cheek, and then you place your bolus with traction on the skin. And I've, I have taken to doing this, and my experience is you maybe get maybe 5% a little bit more lift and the way I understand it is that you're basically creating a, something a little bit like a speed bump. You're pulling all the tissue back, placing a little um, blockade against the tissue falling forward on the bones. So it's very firmly well, well placed. And then when you release that tissue, there's just a little bit more upward traction, which helps you get a little bit more lift for the same amount of product. So I recommend if you're already doing cheeks with a neutral injection, try just gently pulling back on the cheek in the direction you'd like it to go and see if you get a little bit more lift. Interesting. Is it only cheeks? where you would say that applies or could could you do that for any other areas of the face? That's a good question. Um, I think it's probably it's not that many other places that it's directly relevant. Maybe if you're Chuck. doing the gonial angle. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so you've, um, that, that's a similar type of uh, thought process that you're trying okay. to lift the jowl and you might get a little bit more lift by doing that on the gonial angle. Okay. Thank you. So I think it would be great to hear about your experience then. So take us through what happened so um, thankfully, it was a lovely laid-back client who I've mm -hmm. known for years, um, multiple lip treatments on her over time, and it was we'd actually pretty much finished. We had a tiny bit of bow lift left, and she said, will you pop a little bit more in? And, uh, and that was pretty much it. So as I, as I um, put the needle in, I aspirated like I always do, started injecting, and then as I was drag creating a linear thread, there was a little flash, and my first thought, which I think is worth sharing with people, because I think this is what happens, is you think, could it be? And then you falsely reassure yourself and you think, no, it won't be. Um, and then, obviously, it's on your mind now, so you don't, you don't uh, just leave it and go mm. off and have a cup of tea. Um, but my first thought was a false reassurance. And then I, and then I went back, I, I changed my needle. I think I was thinking of doing one more injection. Um, and then I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and check that really thoroughly now. Because I had that little jolt of anxiety, then a drop to like, no, it can't, no. it'll just mm -hmm. be a normal day. <laughs> this won't happen on it. <laughs> uh, and then I went back and, interesting, w with a cotton bud, pressing lightly, capillary refill was actually present. It just, it, I wasn't convinced it looked amazing. And I was wondering whether a little bit of blood in the capillaries, um, you don't really see the, the drop in capillary refill. Because when I then pushed much more comprehensively on the whole lip and then lifted my hand the difference was striking it was there's a huge difference between a little push to check for capillary refill when it's just happened and a full compression of the lip and the lifting up i mean it couldn't be more different one was uh, was falsely reassuring mm -hmm. and the other one was obviously an illusion so can i just clarify wh which part of the lip was this so we were on the it was it was actually an injection in the middle of the lip and i was on the anterior side of it so it wasn't a deep injection um, so lower, lower lip, lower lip, lower lip. Yeah, so and anterior side. I was actually injecting the the medial part of the lip, okay. but it see the blockage seemed to arrive on the lateral part of the lip. That's interesting. Um, and yeah, the 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 interesting thing for me was that, that it wasn't a deep injection. Whenever I use Volift, I tend to be quite superficial because I like it's a nice soft product. Mm. Um, I don't need to hide it a long way from other structures, um, and I usually massage it. But there is a variant about one percent of people. This I saw at a conference in, in at IMCAS, where about one percent of people have quite an anterior inferior labial artery, 
Um, and I, she must have been one of those. And it's very similar to the, the last one I saw about five years ago when I was training another doctor. Um, and that was the same anterior part of the lower lip. Okay. So that's really interesting what you said about the, the doing capillary refill, the pressure you put on makes it made, it made a difference to your assessment then. So you're saying that the gentle pressure, um, it, the capillary refill seemed fine, but when you put on hard pressure, you're saying it, it blanched a lot more. Yes. Um, um, just talk us through the anatomically why you think that could have happened. Um, well, I've been thinking about it since. I'm not. It could be because there are collaterals that supply the same area. So you you have it as a circular artery. Obviously, it goes around all the way around the mouth, and it yeah. might be that there's a slower blood flow that still re- replenishes some of the of the lip, um, which is why true necrosis might be rarer than blockages. I'm sure many more people have blockages that don't necrose, um, but you've got this because of this other, these other routes that are available. Perhaps there's a slow supply. The other thought I had was that maybe there is enough blood in the tissue that if you push it only a little bit, you're not actually squeezing any out of the yes, tissue. That makes and sense. it just reflows so so that your your capillary refill is refilling from smaller vessels that are quite nearby but not from the main artery. Yeah. Uh, and really what you want to do is compress all the small vessels and the capillaries and squeeze then squeeze out all it. that blood. Yeah. Okay. And it was a, a huge difference. Mm, okay, so that's a really good tip. That's actually changed probably what I will do when I'm checking. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a, a bit of a scare on a training course the other day. That was from the lower vermilion border. And same as you, I, I thought, no, it can't be. It looked a bit pale. I thought it can't be. Um, but, yeah, if I'm being honest, I probably only pressed relatively lightly. I kept checking it. I kept it behind. I was happy in the end, but it's definitely something I will I will change to do now. So, yeah. the pressure. And the interesting thing is it do, it, how, how much easier it becomes to diagnose, obviously, the longer it's left. So that's a really good tip if you're not sure, just to keep them behind. I like yeah. that approach. Yeah. Because it will turn, it'll change colour. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so take us through what happened next, though. So you've obviously done this assessment. What time period are we looking at at the moment? It was it, it was this five minutes. Had you been checking it for five minutes? Um, it was. I, minutes. I knew within about three minutes. When I say I reassured, falsely reassured myself, it mm-hmm. was milliseconds of reassurance, <laughs> okay. and then deciding to check again. Um, and then I remembered something which I wrote on my protocol because I'm very aware of the emotions in this in this situation with practitioners um, are high or too low. Like, and it's a very emotional thing making that decision to actually go ahead and reverse someone's procedure. Um, but the first thing that popped into my head is, is remain calm, which is obviously something that most health professionals, you develop that at some point, is that the your instinct to panic is, is literally the worst thing that you could do and it will make it, it'll make things a lot worse for everyone. So... Yeah. Um, I went into super calm mode and I reminded my client what I'd said in the consent process, which is another thing that will really help people. Mm-hmm. If you go through this in your consent process, most even if clients look like they're not listening, you can say to them, remember that thing I told you about the risk of a blocked blood vessel? I'm very sorry, but it looks like there's a little vessel on your lower lip that is blocked. Yeah. So the best thing for us now is to reverse that procedure. That's interesting. I've actually just started saying that on my consent form. I actually go through what would happen if we noticed it as blocked. And, and I actually say to them, if it happens, I'm going to explain, but I want you to stay calm. I'm going to be calm. We'll draw up some reversal agent, etc. So I explained the procedure. So I think, like you say, that 
you can remind them of that and hopefully it would put them at ease I to think, some degree. I think that's a really fantastic tip. And the reason it's fantastic is for two reasons. One, it's going to help you actually do the thing that you say you're going to do yeah. as opposed to flip out when you've not thought about it for five years and think it won't happen mm-hmm. to you. Um, and the other one is your patient has heard it already. So it's so much better when they've heard it already. Um, so that's a really good tip. I think everyone should do that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so after you explained to this lady what, what was going on, how, how did she react at this point? So she's quite laid back, and my, my introduction to this was, was quite laid back as well. So she was actually quite accepting of it. I explained what I was going to do. I consented her again. I think a lot of people panic and just start injecting high lays. You've got, my opinion is, you have several hours at least before real tissue necrosis occurs. So there is no reason to panic and start injecting hyalase in seconds. You can compress tissue and it will rebound. Um, this data comes from bed sores, basically. So people who have compression sores, they, they reckon the minimum time is about two hours. Okay. Um, I think a young person in their lip, you might even have slightly longer. I don't know. But um, it's certainly not a minute-by-minute a minute problem. It's an hour-by-hour hour problem. So you got out a new consent form and reconsented um, that way yes yes okay so just just explained why i was going to do it the main risk for hyalase is allergic reaction and um, the other things are not something that i i have ever experienced clinically for example that you're meant to lose so much volume that you can actually tell i, I don't think most patients can tell and i saw her the next morning as well and she just looked like she hadn't had a lips treated there was no depletion depletion of her volume this oh. might be more of a thing in older people because she was she's only 30 ish um, you're referring to the body's natural hyaluronic acid yeah and it depletes that yeah my understanding there was though that um it would because it's the body's own natural that it does rejuvenate within 48 hours or a week or something is that is that right or yeah do some people feel that it can deplete it long term well the message that gets out there is that it, it depletes hyaluronic acid and therefore you're losing something that was there all along but yeah. the, the message that you that you rightfully said is that that's only a very temporary thing it's remade on a continuous basis yeah. i sometimes describe it as uh, sometimes i say it's almost like on an escalator it's continually churned out or you could say it's a bit like hair growing but much faster okay. so within about 36 hours as you say it's going to be replaced there might be a dip uh, but then it should be full fully back to what it was certainly within a week easily and there is there are zero long-term side effects that i'm aware of um but for some reason, patients don't always get that message, and even clinicians don't always get that message. Mm-hmm. So, it's, apart from allergy, it's actually a very, it's a very safe medication. Okay, can we just stick on that topic of allergy because this is always something that that concerns me slightly. Um, I did listen to a talk, I think, by David Eccleston about um, hyalase and the the cross crossover with wasp and bee allergies. I don't know if that's something that you've read about. Yeah. Um, I, I actually do ask this sometimes, particularly on training courses, just to drill it into the delegates. But I do ask if I remember about that. And I don't know what I would do if someone said, yes, I've had anaphylaxis to wasp and bee stings. I, I guess I have some ideas how I might manage it. But have you got some thoughts there if that was the case? Do you ever ask that, for example? Um, I did ask on this occasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, this is also why it's important to be calm is that you, you think better. So when you panic, your brain literally shuts down. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to do a talk on this in our mindset group on Facebook, which is free to anyone to join, actually. But if you, so if you search for medical aesthetics mindset group and you're medical, so, um, then you can join that group. But when you panic, your brain actually closes down some of its functions and it's basically telling you to run, uh, which is fairly useless <laughs> in this okay. situation. Mm-hmm. But if you can remain calm, you will think of more things. And I actually did think of that in this situation. Um, 
which is, but it's what I think it is, it's interesting and there's an overlap. When I looked up the contents of a bee sting, there are actually hundreds of different compounds hmm. and one of them is hyalase. And the, the, right. the idea being that you can, you can the, the toxin has evolved to enable it to spread further in the body and uses a, a hyalase. So they, they could be allergic to any of those compounds and it isn't necessarily hyalase that's the most allergic. So it, it's, a, it's a little little bit of a flag, but it's not, it's not to say that there's a massive crossover, I don't think, but it's worth testing. So this is why, um, controversially, I recommend an allergy test. And it's controversial because lots of people don't recommend it. I think even the ACE guidelines don't. And the reason that I recommend it is I think you've got to take the context of where you're working into account. Because if you are a long way from anywhere and you have an anaphylactic reaction, that's pretty serious. You know, that's life and death, whereas necrosis is not life and death. Um, but it is, it is, I'm interested in hearing people's top thoughts on this because yeah. um, not everyone agrees with this. But it does become one of, those, one of those things if it is more likely to cause anaphylaxis, which also the data is not amazing on this. Data on all these things isn't amazing because mm -hmm. we're relying on the yellow card system. Mm -hmm. And it just isn't used as often as it should be. Mm. Um, the closest I've got to a concrete number is about one in 2,000 of people are allergic, but it didn't specify anaphylactic or other types of allergies. Okay. Um, That's really interesting about bee stings. They actually contain hyalase. I thought it might be a, a similar molecular structure to hyalase, but it actually contains the compound. Yeah. Um, so theoretically, if you, if you hadn't bought your hyalase, you could nab the bee that's knocking around <laughs> and put it on your lip could help yeah. maybe not yeah i can just imagine you trying to catch a bee in this high attention <laughs> situation um interestingly hyalase is i think there are there are six different types of hyalase in our own body as well so we have we mm. have um hyalase in our tissues and um and some people have high levels of it and it breaks down filler quicker which is something you can discuss with your patients oh, right Okay, that's really interesting. I'm learning lots today. This is great. <laughs> okay, so uh, we're talking about allergies. So you're, you're saying sort of controversially that you are recommending in an emergency situation that you do a patch test. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm recommending to consider your environment, consider what you would do if there was an anaphylactic reaction yeah. and, and take that into account when you decide on what the risks are of doing an allergy test. Um, I think you've got time because I think you've got hours rather than minutes before tissue necrosis happens. And I think anaphylaxis is a far bigger risk than, um, than, than necrosis. So we should take those factors into account and consider it. Um, it does, the, the worst case scenario, therefore, is someone who's, who does have a reaction and then they've also got necrosis and what do you do. Um, and you can implement the rest of the protocol, I suppose, and you could refer them to hospital. And I'd keep an eye on that allergy test and see what happens because... If you're anaphylactic, you'd think it would be a much clearer reaction, certainly within half an hour. It's not going to be a faint, that little bump. Um, and I also think if you're used to doing allergy tests, whenever you hyalase someone, most people will hyalase in a busy aesthetic clinic, you know, a hundred times more people in, a, in an elective situation than in an emergency situation. And that should build up a sense of what a real allergic reaction looks like. So I'm yeah. hoping that within the context of an overall good practice, that assessing that reaction will be quite clear. Um, I also recommend that you do a control next to the hyalase injection, which is, I did see someone on a forum re referring to something she thought was an allergic reaction, which to me looks it could, it could have just been redness from the injection. And that's why it's so useful to do a saline injection nearby as well, so that you can actually see that difference. Yeah. And just to clarify for anyone that hasn't already read about this, an allergy test is generally given in the inner forearm, and it's an intradermal injection, isn't it? Yeah. And it's just a small bleb 
like you say, a control patch and then the highlays, making sure we mark carefully which is which. Mm -hmm. And we're looking for a significant difference between the two, aren't we? Yeah. If one was a lot redder, it developed a wheel, a hive, then we'd be worried about an allergy. I, I can't remember if, if it was you I was speaking to about this, but I, I've always worried about, okay, let's say someone has a history of anaphylaxis to wasp and bee stings or, or even to highlays, and they, and they do get um, a necrosis or a blockage what would we do? And I think someone said that a good idea would be to actually go to A&E with the, with the client, explain to A&E what's happened, and then do a reversal in that controlled environment so that if they had a severe reaction, you've got oxygen, IV adrenaline if you needed it, well, IM adrenaline, and all the resuscitation gear. Does that sound like a reasonable thing, if you're close enough and if that was... I think it's a, it's a really interesting scenario <laughs> because if you picture what's going on there, you've got probably a clinician in an A&E department with, with no proof that they're a clinician recommending <laughs> to, to inject true. someone uh, who might have an anaphylactic reaction. And I, um, I, I think it would depend a lot which consultant was on and how kind of rough and ready they were um, to take that sort of, that's, that that's sort of risk. You could do it in the car park and then if they <laughs> had a reaction, rush them in. Yeah. Or taking some, I mean, we should probably always carry ID with us anyway or documentation, something like that, but... I think if you were to stand up in the court, if something was to happen, you know, a life-threatening anaphylaxis, and you demonstrated that you did everything you could to be safe in that situation, mm -hmm. possibly it would it would stand you in better stead than if you hadn't hadn't gone to any. Yeah, well, well, worth a thought anyway. It is. I mean, it's interesting, and it, these there's so much in this field that is it's un unknown basically mm. about what would be the ultimate best best case so you just don't know from a red wheel whether that's definitely anaphylaxis so it depends on the grade of it because it can be very mild or very pronounced um so it is it's it's difficult and even a negative response doesn't mean they can't have a secondary or delayed reaction to it because sometimes you can become sensitized to something can't you and yeah. then the next time you're exposed you can have a worse reaction so that's always a possibility as well so we shouldn't be falsely reassured by a negative react, uh, patch test yeah yeah okay um okay so we've we've explored sort of allergies a little bit then so do you want to go back to your story and where you're at at this point okay so at this point um i'm i'm now happy to inject i've done a warm compress um mm -hmm. we're we're waiting for the allergy test i'm getting the highlays ready thankfully i had an assistant with me which makes it a, a lot easier than if you had to do this by yourself. It always is in our clinic because there's so many people around. Um, but this could happen to people with just them injecting. So you might want to think about who you'd call to, to help you and just, just keep yourself together. Um, and uh, and actually, I, I must give credit as well to the first time this ever happened five years ago. Um, I had done my whole reversal protocol. I was 45 minutes in, and it still wasn't returning the blood flow. And I rang uh, Fabacuisi in Liverpool, who was the only doctor I knew of at that time who dealt with this. And he was great and he talked me through it. And I'm now, because of what he's done, really happy to help any clinicians who are in a similar situation. You can direct message me on Facebook and I'll call you and talk you through. If I can offer some help, that, that's fine. And I know all of us would, would do that if we we're in the clinic and we got, we got a call. Because you just need someone as a sounding board to just, to just sign off that you've done everything correctly. Because in that situation, because it'll be the first time for most people, you'll do maybe at the current run rate, one, you know, maybe four or five in my career. It's not that many. Yeah, I think that's a really um, generous thing you've just sort of offered there and said. And I think that really demonstrates the ethos of what you've created here at, at Skinviva. So, yeah, yeah, well, it's, it's, all, it's, out of, it's out of gratitude for one because I know what it's like being on the other side mm -hmm. of it. And um, I'll always be grateful to Fab for doing that. Yeah. 
Okay, um, so so there was a question there actually, which I've which I've drifted off. Well, you you were talking about um, your assistants and want people to help. Yeah. Um, so the other thing I would point out from both both occasions is that the length of time it takes to unblock a vessel is longer than than feels nice. Like so, basically, what happens to both the clinician and the patient is after a certain amount of time, on an emotional level, you start to think it's not going to work, and you start to give up and you start to panic and you have these thoughts of like what am I going to do everything mm. I'm doing is failing and the first time it was around 45 minutes that I was, that I was start, starting to feel that way and this time I knew it was going to be longer but I forgot to tell the patient I, right. I said we're going to reverse it and it will take some time I think I might have said it, it will have to keep going but I didn't, I didn't have a timeline in my mind if it happened again I would say expect around 90 minutes before we get anything I'm going to have to go through this uh, process I didn't know that I thought it was almost an instant instant um, improval yeah blood flow. so right. because i think that would massively have helped maintain the emotion because my very laid-back patient mm. actually became quite anxious around about that 45 50 minute time mm. and started to say things like it's not going to work is it it's not and and i was saying oh, it is going to work but i hadn't actually told myself yet be patient it's going to take 90 minutes and that would have helped me give a much more certain message to her because um, it was only a tiny amount of vo lift, you know, it it really shouldn't it should it should have been easy to unblock over time, easy enough. So um, that that would be a, something I would do differently: is signpost the length of time it's probably going to take, and what will happen afterwards. And um, we did talk, do a lot of talking about what what happens if it doesn't work, uh, which is I I assume because there was some blood flow, that she probably wouldn't have had a necrotic lip. It probably would have been very swollen, um, but I wasn't going to let her go without without achieving uh, blood flow. That's interesting. Uh, I I was not aware about the, that time, and I do wonder whether, let's for, say for example, the ALR base when you've done a bolus, if you've put 0.35 mils there, do you think it will take even longer than 90 minutes as opposed to a tiny thread of volift? Um, well, yeah. I mean, what what else can affect how long it would take? You're basically relying on the penetration of higher layers through the artery, mm. and if it's a bigger artery, maybe that would take longer. Um, I do wonder if you've massaged it and it's some of it's gone into the capillaries whether that actually would take less time to dissolve because you've got a much higher surface area for the high layers to pass through um, and then there's also the type of filler that you're using so if you're if it's a long chain hyaluronic acid uh, as opposed to volift which is mixture of short and long chains mm. if it's a more of a long chain product like juvenile ultra 4 or something it's going to take longer i would have thought right so and different fillers have different different properties so it might take longer you're correct Okay, so again, something to to warn our patients during the consent process isn't immediate, but it takes some time. Don't panic. Yeah, and we try and stay calm at that point as well if it happens. It feels like a very long time. I'm sure, it does. What do you what do you talk about for forty five minutes? <laughs> the weather. Yeah. Um, That's an awkward conversation. It was very quiet in that room at various at various points. I'm sure it was. Um, okay, so along with warm massage and um, the highlays was there anything else that you did I mean I, I read about other things but the evidence just seems so scanty for, for things like GTN and sildenafil I think the, the, the evidence is mainly based on what we learn in clinical medicine with things that might be related you know um, swelling in your brain can decrease blood flow and so we prescribe steroids and that can improve blood flow to the brain and maybe it'll improve blood flow to a swollen lesion that's ne that's necrotic um, and therefore increase improve 
uh, improve blood flow. So some people prescribe steroids. But it's not based on this scenario. It's based on similar-ish scenarios. Okay. Similar with aspirin, um, the, the thought being that if there's a clot, you're going to reduce clotting, and that clotting is one more thing that could cause a problem, which makes sense. It feels low risk to me. So mm-hmm. we did give her 300 milligrams of aspirin uh, while I was waiting for the allergy test to work. Okay. Um, Viagra, the thinking with Viagra is that it's, it's an art- arterial dilator, and so you're going to improve blood flow. GTN was in favor, um, but the, my understanding of it is that GTN predominantly dilates veins. That's how it helps with angina. It dilates the peripheral veins and decreases cardiac load. And it's similar with, um, I know a lot of people think it's about dilating the, the actual arteries in your heart, but it, it's predominantly apparently the, the veins that it dilates. At least that's my understanding of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you do that in the area that you blocked an artery, you could just be increasing the pressure on that artery and decreasing blood flow of oxygen, which is really what you really want. Um, right. So so GTN kind of came out of favor, but it is very much, it's still based on, the, there was, the most relevant thing I saw was on skin flaps, where they were in surgery, where they had plastic surgeons that attached a flap of skin, that they were applying GTN to try and increase blood flow to it, and it was ineffective because they, they were increasing flow out, but not necessarily, wasn't actually making a big contribution to the arteries okay. uh, supplying blood. So GTN is a little bit out of favor. Yeah. Viagra is in. Okay. So should clinicians, particularly work in mobile, in salons, we should be carrying Viagra around? Well, you... Nick, your husband's supply. I, I personally think it's, it's a nice addition, but Hyalase is 95% of your battle. So... What I think is reasonable, because no, no nurses can carry an unprescribed drug around, so we need to have a situation where we, you basically hopefully get a prescriber on the way out of you, your rescue process to prescribe some Viagra until you see them the next morning to try and help as much as possible. Okay. Um, but I don't, think, uh, I don't think Viagra is something that practically people will keep in clinics. Now, you could, but, but it would be breaking the prescribing rules to have, them, have it prescribed for one person and to use it for someone else with, without a great evidence base. Okay. Um, now, the Hyalase issue is worth mentioning, is how can you have Hyalase in your clinic um, for, for similar reasons, if you're an independent nurse, um, you're not supposed to keep un- pre- drugs prescribed for other people for use in someone else, and you also can't hold stock. So it's tricky, and I think those rules need to be changed. At mm. some point, when aesthetics becomes more developed, I think they will change. Um, but in the meantime, the only system I'm aware of that is legal is that you have a sign-up process with your patients. So when they sign up to be your patient, to have dermal filler, part of their they're joining your clinic is that you prescribe a vial of at least one vial of Hyalase, probably two, two or three vials of Hyalase, and you charge them thirty pounds for that. Hopefully, you have a nice prescriber who will support you with it. If you're the prescriber, it doesn't matter, um, so you're not char- you so that you're not being charged so much for the for the Hyalase, like thirty pounds each or forty pounds each for each vial would be a bit much. Yeah. So one prescription for emergency use for that patient that you then store on their behalf. If it ever. <coughs> Excuse me. If it ever does happen, then at least you you have that drug available and you're not breaking any rules. That's the only way I've heard of doing it. Um, other arguments are that you are it's an emergency, so that you you're happy to defend that situation. But we wouldn't recommend that. Okay, that's fine. So, is there anything else in terms of uh, additions to higher layers, or have we co- we've covered the main things, haven't we? Um, antibiotics. Some people prescribe in case they haven't unblocked it, basically, to try and prevent bacteria playing a role. Um, I think if you're using hyaluronic acid fillers and you haven't injected a massive bolus into a huge artery, um, then you 
you probably will will solve it by dissolving it okay. um, and all the other things are less less of an issue but with if you're not getting a response i would basically be putting more and more things into it to try and to try and prevent does the, the, the risk of reaction to hyalase increase with each injection with each vial that you're opening and injecting in or is there no limit to what, what you I inject? think allergies develop are more likely to develop over a long period of time rather than a short period of time I think if you're not allergic to it on the day you probably have a lot without being allergic to it um, but if you had a lot every month you'd probably become allergic to it okay how many vials did you end up using on this lady um, I think I ended up using five vials which right. is which is a lot, um, and, and that's could, more than what a lot of people will be carrying. I would I would think. Yes, um, I also think. I mean, I had the luxury of having a whole clinic with at least that we probably had thirty vials in the clinic, so I wasn't holding back. Um, I'd recently read about this pulsed high dose highlays um, protocol that you can use, which also isn't in the in the ACE guidelines, and it made sense to me from the first time I had it because what I noticed when I first when I first had a necrosis a, a pending necrosis is that. When you inject the hyalase, it fills the area rather rapidly, and then it also disappears quite rapidly. So you end up massaging this lip, which feels really volume depleted. In fact, not so much the second time, but the first time, I remember being quite shocked by how thin the lip felt, mm -hmm. and then thinking, but that, this also means that the hyalase is also dispersing. It's not where I want it to be. I need a high concentration of hyalase around that artery, or it's, or it's not doing anything. Yeah. Um, and so it does make sense to me that you should you should replace the you should use the clinical assessment of the volume you've injected as a sign of how high the hyalase is concentrated around that area. The reason it's in bee stings is because it helps things permeate. It flows away from the area. And this means to me that we, we should be considering that fact when we consider how often we apply. So one injection of hyalase and then leaving it, I think it's vastly less likely to work than multiple pulses. So this might be a reason to use a 5 mil dilution, which is the upper end of what is on the ACE guidelines, because you okay. could inject a mil every 15 minutes and you'd be maintaining hyalase in that area. That's okay. one thing you could do if you don't have lots of hyalase with you. Yeah. And then you're going to get it all in, but you're not going to inject it all at once and it all disappears and then you've lost that concentration that you need. Okay. So d did you use a, f a 5 mil dilation for this lady? Dilution, uh, sorry. No, I was, I was using um, 2 mils. 2, okay. Uh, w was there... Any anything else then to, to what happened, or was it quite a, a swift resolution at that forty five minutes? And uh, no, was... it took closer to ninety minutes before oh, I was 90. happy. Right. I thought it was improving around forty five minutes, but not enough for me to even say to the patient yeah. I didn't want to be wrong. So mm -hmm. I kept checking it. I thought it looked slightly better, but kept going. At and at ninety minutes, I became elated <laughs> <laughs> when I saw every time I pushed on it, it was just filling rapidly back, and you feel amazing when you've done that. Yeah. Now she was still in a state. And I have a principle of of over treating, over caring for people who are who have had a bad experience. Mm. So I offered to review her. It was Good Friday, so I agreed to see her, um, and we and I went and reviewed her, her again on the on the on the Friday morning, yeah. and it was as expected, a great result. She actually wasn't even that bruised. She looked more bruised during the procedure, which I think highlights helps get rid of bruising. Okay. Um, and she was really grateful that I'd seen her, and she's actually booked in this afternoon to to redo the the treatment. Oh, right. I was going to ask about that. So, yeah, it hasn't put her off, p probably because you dealt with it so professionally. Yeah, I think I maintained a sense of certainty for her. Yeah. Um, even though in my own head at moments, you do have moments where your head drifts into what if this isn't going to work. I'd never communicated that. So it felt it felt much better for her than it could have. Um, and the the other thing is, I'm, I mean, I, also, I always think there's a good principle of doing something different the next time. So we're, I'm going to use 
a cannula for her treatment this time, um, which will make her feel better. I think we were very unlucky, and obviously, mm. because it, you know, if you've done so many and never had it, there's an element of luck. Um, but I know that I think it'll be safer, and she'll feel safer using a cannula. And I just don't need the definition in her lower lip. Top lips actually maintained itself quite well, but I also okay. did some chin um, chin restoration for her, which obviously is totally gone. Okay. Oh, because of the highlight spreading. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. Now I don't want to labour the point. Um, I think we need to wrap up soon. But my last question is. Uh, if you'd repeatedly, let's say you've gone to five vials, eight vials, and it's still not working, um, would you then try use saline as an alternative just to keep flushing the highlays away? What then? Um, I have heard of a, of someone saying that saline helps disperse it. Um, the evidence would be far less even than the lack of evidence we have for other things. Um, but it, you know, most of these products are water-soluble. I suppose it might help. Uh, if you've got nothing else, and you want to keep going with warm compressors and saline, I don't think you'll do much harm. I don't think it's going to help much if you're... It would help, I think, if you were compressing a vessel. For example, if you injected a labella and you are compressing the supertrochlear artery, which is a bit more common, um, that makes sense to me that you might be able to wash some of that pressure away as well as massaging it. Um, I don't know. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel like it would cause much harm, but I don't feel... I don't feel that optimistic that it's going to make the, the, the big difference. Okay. And if you were in a situation like this without highlays, you should f find some highlays from somewhere and mm -hmm. um, take them to another clinic. People sometimes worry about their reputations at this point and don't go full out in terms of solving the problems. Always better to go full out, get humble and get help. Okay. Well, Tim, thank you very much for sharing that story. It's, I think it's really hit home a few points to me, um, how it must feel. Um, but also there's, there's definitely some really useful clinical tips there. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm going to a salon, um, a Skin Viva salon this afternoon, but it's made me think that I probably need to stock up some more highlays, take more than just two vials with me. Um, yeah, so but you've but, always got us. We'll, I'll, I'll come rushing in a taxi. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, but yeah, but yeah take, take some more by all means. It's, it's always better to be overprepared. Yeah. And it's not expensive stuff, so why not? Great. Okay, so we're just going to wrap up with the consultation hack of the week. So this week it is in regards to a angry patient, which is the same for pretty much anyone in the medical field, nurses, physios, dentists, doctors. We all deal with angry patients at some point. And it's in relation to how we deal with the anger and the, the words that we use. So um, I find that when someone's cross about something, we need to apologize. We need to acknowledge their emotion and that their anger but what we shouldn't do particularly if we're not in the wrong is to say i'm sorry for example i'm sorry that the botox hasn't worked for you what is better is to say i can see that you're unhappy and i'm really sorry that you feel that way i'm sorry that you're unhappy and by doing that i feel it it really um, it validates that emotion for the clients and i've found particularly that that can diffuse quite um you know pent-up anger in, in the patient quite easily um, and I've I've often had clients who've been crossed with everyone they've spoken to right up until the point where they've seen me I've dealt with that I've validated their emotions and really empathized with it I suppose and then all of a sudden they love me and they think Do you know what you're the first doctor that has listened to me and is really taking me seriously and I almost feel a bit like a fraud because <laughs> you know the poor receptionist had a mouthful and whoever else customer service have had a mouthful and then I'm the one here getting the glory, but I think it's important that, that we do that and to diffuse it and hopefully keep them as a client or yeah. at least prevent a complaint. 
I, I love that. And I think it's, um, it's, it's what patients are often trying to do. I know a lot of my GP friends, we, we sometimes, we've all noticed that when you're talking to someone about a sore throat, for example, which I've got at the moment, is that when you're trying to find out the symptoms so that you can make the diagnosis, they keep telling you anecdotes about how the symptoms are affecting them. And, and it's that emotional message that they're trying to get across, mm. which is it's not just the sore throat, it's the fact that I can't sleep and I can't do this. And it's all those things. If you acknowledge them, you can then go down with actually getting the facts you need to make the diagnosis. Um, but it's that emotional acknowledgement. I think that's brilliant. And really repeating the words, the exact words they've used, I think is key as well. Because if, until you do that, they don't always feel like you've really listened. But as soon as you repeat those words, that's it. They know this, this doctor has listened to what I've just said for this Great. clinician. Yeah. I think by making them feel that you see the problem from their point of view, you gain so much trust that you, can, you then get to influence their point of view. Until they believe that you've seen it from their point of view, you cannot influence what they, what they feel. Yeah. So it's, it, it's a great, simple, feels good. Um, as you're right, sometimes it feels a bit ninja. Like how, <laughs> how come they, they're so happy after it? And all I did was agree with them about how they felt, but not about the cause of it. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a great thing to do because that's what we all need. We all need to be heard. Yeah. I hope you found this useful. We would really appreciate some feedback again. We've had some really positive reviews and comments. Um, I believe that some of the other podcasts have been posted on some other aesthetics forums, which is great as well. Thank Thanks you very much. Listening. Listening.